someone needed to rally the troops, and Rome's greatest living general was having a hard time doing it. Pompey the Great had a, well, great reputation as a commander, which his recruits and veterans alike could see for themselves. He trained and drilled right alongside them, and could swing a sword like a man half his age. But this time, his troops weren't just Romans. Desperate times and a civil war had caused him to recruit men from the provinces instead of just Italy itself, and they were about to go to war against soldiers who had up until recently been on the same side. If ever there was a time for an inspiring speech, this was it. He begged his commanders to rally the troops, but nothing and no one could rouse them. They responded sluggishly and in silence to every speech. Until Cato the Younger got up to speak. Passion is compelling. Cato the Younger, for his entire life, had been supremely passionate about one thing, the Roman Republic. As a teenage boy, he had sat at the bloody right hand of the tyrant Sulla, who bypassed the institutions of Rome and ruled alone. Cato had watched the severed heads of Rome's elite and anyone else who opposed the dictator jammed on pikes and stuck in the forum. The courts of law, the guiding hand of the Senate, the restrictions placed on consuls who dreamed of being king, in short, all the things that enabled Rome to master the known world and bring peace and civilization and light to dark lands, ceased to exist while Sulla was in charge. Cato knew firsthand what would happen if a dictator gained control of Rome, and one was on his way. Julius Caesar had been playing a long game aimed at one goal, his complete mastery of Rome. Caesar had also learned lessons from Sulla's reign. He once said that Sulla had made a huge mistake by stepping down. For Julius Caesar, Sulla's dictatorship was a practice run. Caesar believed that he could do everything better than everyone else. He had proven that he could out-politic Rome's greatest politicians and out-general Rome's greatest generals. He had made himself as rich as Rome's richest man. The only thing left on his to-do list was to surpass Rome's most recent dictator. Aspiring Dictator for Life Safety Tip Number 257 When your dictatorship is for life, you don't resign. Cato knew by now that once Caesar had dictatorial powers, he would never give them up. And that the longer he stayed in power, the less likely it would be that the Republic would ever recover. This was it, he told Pompey's massed armies. The upcoming battles weren't for territory or plunder. This fight was to save the Republic. If they lost, nearly a millennium of sacrifice and progress and conquest would be wiped out with them. When Cato, after all the other speakers, had rehearsed with genuine emotion all the appropriate sentiments to be drawn from philosophy concerning freedom, virtue, death, and fame, and finally passed into an invocation of the gods as eyewitnesses of their struggle in behalf of their country. There was such a shouting and so great a stir among all the soldiers thus aroused that all the commanders were full of hope as they hastened to confront the peril. The soldiers knew that Cato wasn't just standing up to say a few words and send them off to fight. He was a soldier himself, 
one who, like Pompey, had shown them that he could train and march alongside them. He was preparing the troops for battle, and he was going with them. Pompey had a chance to completely destroy Caesar at the Battle of Dyrrhachium. The two armies had set up fortifications and seemed locked in a stalemate. Pompey had the larger army, but Caesar controlled the supply of fresh water, and he immediately began to cut it off. Pompey, for once, got a taste of Caesar's legendary luck when a pair of Caesar's soldiers fell into his hands and were able to show him an incomplete section of Caesar's wall. Pompey sent everything he had against that one vulnerable spot and broke through. Caesar fought back and managed to repel Pompey's legions for a time, but he was outnumbered two to one and had to retreat in order to save his army. Pompey the Great claimed victory and believed the brief civil war was now over. He should have pressed his advantage and destroyed Caesar's army while it was on the run, but he stayed where he was. Julius Caesar said, Today the victory had been the enemy's, had there been anyone among them to gain it. Hi there. Since you follow this great show, you're clearly a fan of unconventional history shows. If so, then you might want to check out my podcast, History of Asia. What's so unusual about it? Well, for one thing, the scope is quite broad. We cover the whole of Asia, all time periods. But what makes my approach truly unique, I dare say, is that I start off in the present. Then I explain how it got to that point by delving ever deeper into the past. And that way, you can always tell why the historical events under scrutiny still matter. Eccentric, you say? Well, if you never tried something new, you never would have bumped into a hidden gem like train wrecks. I'll leave you to it, but don't forget to check out History of Asia by Christoph Arts. Pompey waited several days, sending out scouts to look for the ambush he suspected Caesar of setting up, believing Caesar was just waiting for Pompey to move his army away from his fortifications, where it could be beaten out in the open. But there was no ambush. Pompey finally ordered his troops to move out and pursue Caesar, leaving Cato in command of 4,000 troops at Dyrrhachium, putting him in charge of what was essentially a supply depot. Pompey, sensing victory was at hand, gave Cato this dead-end job to deny him any chance at military glory. Cato had been a thorn in Pompey's side far longer than he had been his grudging ally. Imagining a post-Civil War Rome, Pompey definitely didn't want Cato to be able to add military triumph to his political reputation, which would make him Pompey's chief rival for power. One of the most interesting things about Pompey and Cato's history is how much they misunderstood each other and the consequences of getting it wrong. Cato spent years believing Pompey was another Sulla, a tyrant waiting in the wings for his big chance. The truth was that Pompey was an indecisive and ineffective political leader, without the necessary killer instincts of a Sulla or a Caesar. He had been offered ultimate power a number of times, yet never effectively took it. Believing that Pompey was just as bad as Sulla or Caesar kept Cato from forming an alliance with the popular general and combining their stellar reputations to preserve the Republic. If the two men had been on the same side, Cato could have worked through Pompey to shore up Rome's institutions. 
Poppy, for his part, never knew what to do with Cato either. Cato himself was no help. Being an intractable stick in the mud didn't get you close friends and allies. It got you people who admired you from a distance and mocked you behind your back. But Pompey thought Cato was just another senator out to enrich and glorify himself at the country's expense, in addition to being an uptight, moralizing nag, and so he kept him at arm's length. Cato's principles and Pompey's military reputation could have combined to forestall the Republic's fall. Their short-sightedness got in the way, and now it was too late. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historytrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. Once again, Pompey failed to properly assess the mood of the people on his side. The upper-class refugees from Rome, senators, magistrates, and rich guys, felt that Pompey had squandered a chance for easy victory at Dyrrhachium and was needlessly prolonging the war to remain in charge. His consulship was over. The dictatorial powers he had been granted to stop Caesar's rise would end with Caesar's defeat, so once the war was over, Pompey would go back to being an ordinary citizen. Pompey was exceptionally sensitive to this kind of chatter. According to Plutarch, he was a slave to fame and loath to disappoint his friends. More likely, based upon his actions when he held dictatorial power in Rome, he lacked a clear idea of what to do next. So he had to be pushed into action. His army lined up facing Caesar's on August 9th, 48 BC, at Pharsalus. Pompey had more men than Caesar. Caesar had more battle-tested veterans, who were unswervingly loyal to the general who had brought them loot and victory. Pompey had a reputation for effectiveness in battle. The legend of Caesar told the story of a commander who kept winning battles against long odds. Like this one. The men watching the battle from afar, according to Plutarch, began to reflect upon the past to which contentiousness and greed had brought the sovereign Roman state. For with kindred arms, fraternal ranks, and common standards, the strong manhood and might of a single city, in such numbers, was turning its own hand against itself. No matter how the Battle of Pharsalus played out, there would be no winner. On paper, at least, Caesar won. He ordered his front lines to go for the eyes, using their javelins to stab at the faces of oncoming cavalry instead of throwing them from a distance. Pompey's horsemen panicked, and his soldiers, watching the cavalry flee, were outflanked and beaten. Caesar lost 200 men. Pompey lost 15,000, with 24,000 captured. Back at Dyrrhachium, Cato's orders were, typically, straightforward. If Pompey was alive, they would hold out against Caesar and await further orders. If Pompey was dead, Cato would return the army to Italy and then choose exile, saving himself from ever again looking Caesar in the eye.
Cato nominated good old Cicero to take command in Pompey's absence. As a former consul, Cicero was the highest-ranking Roman, and even as a figurehead, his command would maintain the image of a struggle between the Roman Republic and an illegal dictator. Cicero declined the command, to the outrage of all assembled, and Cato had to rush him out of the camp and onto a ship bound for Brundisium for his own safety. Down at the port, the old allies said their final words to each other. Cicero fled to safety, and Cato headed for Africa, where he expected Pompey to be. They would never see each other again. Pompey's plan after his defeat at Pharsalus was to head for Egypt, where he could use the resources of the boy king Ptolemy XIII to keep Caesar at bay in exchange for helping the king in his ongoing quest to take the throne away from his sister, Cleopatra. He got in a fishing boat in Alexandria to go ashore. It struck a sandbar, and while it was hung up, a Roman tribune named Septimius struck the general with his sword. Other men piled on, stabbing Pompey to death while he covered his face with his toga. The Egyptians sent Pompey's head to Caesar, who wept over it. Plutarch wrote, No one, now that Pompey was gone, would even listen to another commander while Cato was at hand. He headed for Utica, the capital of Roman Africa, bringing Pompey's last 10,000 men across the desert with him. The scorching, dry, featureless desert was a place that suited Cato, the self-sacrificing Stoic. The Republic was now a resistance. It was a government in exile. With Cato at its head, Julius Caesar could be deprived of total victory, and Caesar knew it. The dictator could never rest easy on his throne, while the standard-bearer of the institutions he was going to trample was still out there somewhere. Cato and the Republic's remnants went to Utica to make Rome's last stand. On our next episode, Cato fights against the squabbling exiles who fled Pharsalus. He manages to turn the city of Utica into an armed camp, ready for a final showdown with the would-be dictator. Julius Caesar would not be master of Rome until Cato was dealt with, so he made plans to go deal with Cato. At the very end, Cato the Younger, all alone, manages to keep Caesar from getting his way. Stay tuned for Stubborn Nags of Ancient Rome, Part 13.